And here's what the Lord would say to us. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He's given food to those who fear him. He will remember his covenant forever. He has made known to his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts, <clears throat> all his precepts are trustworthy. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who follow his commandments have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Again, I'll remind you that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful passage. We can come back to it over and over and over and find more and more of your your wonderful words of life. And we're thankful for that, that we can never exhaust you. We can never get to the very end of all that you have to say to us so that we might know you, the one true God and your son, Jesus Christ, and thereby have everlasting life. May we tonight enjoy that life even more. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. <clears throat> We're going to focus tonight really on what's said there in verse 9. And particularly in those, uh, those last words, holy and awesome is his name. Uh, but you'll notice that's said in the context of his redemption and his covenant. And those two go together. He covenanted to save a people for himself and to keep a people for himself. And so he redeemed us because of that eternal covenant. And he, he keeps us in his good, loving arms because he bound himself to do that in covenant from before the foundations of the world. Well, you may have noticed already... Uh, Back to Revelation 4, uh, the holy, holy, holy uh, emphasis there that's cried out around the throne. We saw it as well in chapter 5. Uh, we're going to refer to Isaiah chapter 6 in a few moments. And, uh, and that's where we're going to focus tonight. Last week it was on the fear of God, how that we've... Nothing has happened to God, but we have lost a healthy, healthful fear of God. And one of the ways of restoring that is to regain 
the sense of his holiness. Several years ago, and I'm sure some of you all have read this. Uh, if you haven't, you need to. Uh, R.C. Sproul uh, wrote a book called The Holiness of God. Uh, I should think that there wouldn't be much argumentation that uh, that is R.C.'s most relevant and abiding contribution, literary contribution at least, to the church. I know he wouldn't disagree with that. That's what he hoped when he wrote it and when he died was that the holiness of God. And if you listen to table, if you read table talk or if you, if you listen to any of the various uh, 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 productions on radio coming out of Ligonier, you know that's their goal. If, you, if you've ever been to one of their annual conferences, in Florida, you know that the holiness of God is, is the ever-present theme. And I would submit to you that what we need in the church, and by the way, you know, I say this occasionally in different ways, we shouldn't expect the world to be renewed by the holiness of God. But that's what the church needs. If judgment begins with the church, then, then revival has to begin with the church too. And revival comes through a regaining of a healthy fear of God. And that begins, I would submit to you again, with a right view of his holiness. Holiness is one of those, one of those terms in the Bible that God is holy, holy, holy. It's the only place an attribute of God is repeated. Uh, like that in, in three times. You've all heard that, no doubt. It's, uh, but the word holy is a tough word to get a grip on. That's the reason theologians through the centuries have had a hard time when they discuss the holiness of God. Uh, is, it, is it one of the attributes of God? If so, should it be number one in the list? Or is it like that overarching characteristic, that overarching attribute of God and everything else, his righteousness, his goodness, his love, etc., etc., is all part of his holiness. You go to the etymology of the word and it doesn't help a whole lot. It's, it's, you've probably heard it. You know, it, it, it. It's translated in some places as this heaviness. This, and you just get this sense of well, I think maybe it's, it's heaviness has to do with, and by the way, this tips my hand, I do think it's the big picture, the umbrella of who God is, that everything else that we know about God is stuffed under the holiness of God, and so it's a heavy, heavy doctrine because it, it encompasses this infinite God. It tells us who he is in all of his, all of his being, and all of his work. And so we're talking about something that we can hardly grasp. But then that's what's happening when we talk about God, isn't it? It is. And we need a good dose of God's not like us. 
because we do this a lot, don't we? Somebody tells you a story. It may be a, a hard story about their health or about their family situation. And, oh, I understand. We've got that in our family. We like to, we like to make everything common, right? Everything familiar. And we do that with God. And I, I think perhaps that's exactly one of the reasons why we don't have a real good holy equals in the Bible. It, we're left with this, boy, he is just, God's hard to comprehend. No kidding. That's the reason theologians talk about the incomprehensibility of God. He's hard to comprehend. And that shouldn't put us off and it shouldn't cause us to just, oh, well, I can't comprehend God. No, there's plenty in this book of accommodations so that we can know him without knowing him completely. What kind of God would you, what, could, what kind of God would he be if you could figure him out? If you could know him completely? If you could, if you could buy buy the book and you start in the beginning and you go to the end and you're like, oh, got that. Yeah, got that. And that shouldn't surprise us. We're made in his image and there are men that have biographies written on them and in a few years someone else writes a biography on them. In a few years, someone else writes a biography on them. And by the time you've read the five or six or seven biographies on a top on a person, you're like, well, I learned something more about him every time a biographer picks up and writes. If that can be true of a mere mortal, how much more so of our great holy, holy, holy God? We need to regain that. That's what happened to Isaiah, isn't it? Isaiah 6, and you saw the echoes of Isaiah 6 in Revelation chapter 4, didn't you? The quotation there of the holy, holy, holy refrain. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. That's the way it reads in the New American Standard 2020. And if you've heard much preaching on Isaiah. You may even remember when I preached through Isaiah uh, some time back now, uh, when we get to those passages with the Lord of hosts. And a lot of, a lot of people have, I wonder what a host is. You know, a host is someone that welcomes you into their home. Well, that's not a host. That's not the Lord of hosts. It's the Lord of armies. In other words, it's these myriads of myriads of myriads that he has at his, at his command. It's the armies that the Lord spoke about. He could have said the word and the armies would have come down and taken him out of that mess that he was, he was entering into on our behalf. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. You remember the, the, the reaction that Isaiah has to, 
seeing the Lord high and lifted up and hearing him described as holy, holy, holy. Woe is me. Woe is me. I'm a sinner. I'm ruined. Why again? Well, he explains why. Because this holy, holy, holy one, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. So see there, okay, we got it now. King and armies. King and host, we don't, that doesn't make much sense to us. But king and armies, that's exactly what the host are. They're his armies. They're his troops. We see this imagery all the way through the book of Revelation. He is, he is on the move. There's a reason that his church has been referred to through the ages as the church militant. That's who we are today. That's the reason a hymn writer would write a song like Onward Christian Soldiers. Because we're his armies. I know, look around. We don't look much like an army, do we? But you remember what Jesus said to Peter? Peter put the sword away. This is not a battle that we fight with swords. This is a battle that we fight with the word and the spirit. So we're an army of the Lord. We're a little bitty part of his his large army around the world today. But then there's all those who have gone before us. And we see this imagery in Revelation. But all of this points us to the fact of where it began with Isaiah and what we saw in Revelation, holy, holy, holy. That's who he is. That's part of his fullness. That's part of his weightiness. That's part of his incomprehensibility is we've got this God. As Ed Welch said years ago, preaching in Ezekiel, you remember the throne? You remember that throne and the wheels are going every direction And the throne is going in every direction. Anybody ever seen a chair going in every direction? No. Anybody ever seen a movie with a throne in it that was going in every direction? No. But God's throne is. Why? Because he's everywhere. He's omnipresent. But the title of that sermon, Carol just reminded me of this recently. She said, I heard somebody preach a sermon once, and then I've heard somebody more recently refer to, to Ezekiel, and she was reading through Ezekiel. And, and the reference there to the, the throne and how it's moving in every direction all at the same time. And said, if I remember correctly, whoever heard say this was referring to a sermon that Ed Welch preached, and it was something about God and his providence. And, and I said, yes. And the title of the sermon was, God is on his throne, and the throne is on the move. God is on his throne, and the throne is on his move. Holy, holy, holy. It doesn't matter which direction you look at God, which direction he's coming or going. 
He's holy. He's perfect. I'm pretty sure I can speak for all of you here tonight. doesn't matter. Children, seasoned saints, mature, less mature, more mature. We can always stand another dose and a larger dose of the holiness of God. Because the only way we're going to be more holy, and that's what we're striving for, isn't it? To be more holy. We say things like, I want to be more like Christ. Well, we have to be more holy to be like Christ. So we need to be reminded of that. Sproul's book goes a long way toward that. Hopefully tonight will be just a little way toward that. So let's look at it real quickly. First thing I want us to see, and that's from reading Psalm 111, is that he's not like us. Do you notice how it's described? Uh, Great are the works of the Lord. Splendid and majestic is his work. His righteousness endures forever. Even in our our best moments, our righteousness doesn't endure forever. It seldom lasts a minute at a time. And then some awful thought runs through our mind. Or some criticism of the way the person's driving next to us. Or the way his car sounds or her car sounds. Maybe I'm the only wicked person in this room that thinks those kind of thoughts when people cut me off in traffic. Or when they run traffic lights. Or when they sit at the traffic light and I have to do the Philadelphia thing that gets in my bones every once in a while, I have to honk the horn. I never knew what the horn in a car was for except to, call, to pull up to somebody's house and let them know you were there so they wouldn't shoot you until I moved to Philadelphia. And the car horn is for everything. You honk the corn when, horn when you stop at a traffic light. You honk it when somebody sits until the light's green. I didn't know what was going on for the first few months we lived there. Why are they, what's wrong? I checked my tail lights. I thought, what is wrong with me? Horns honking everywhere. Well, we're not like God. He is righteous. His graciousness and his compassion. He remembers his covenant. I remember that God made covenant when I'm reminded he made covenant. But I don't always remember. You know how I know I don't always remember? Because I get scared sometimes. And I don't pray sometimes. And I forget that Christ has done everything sometimes. So I don't remember always. God does. He's not like us. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are trustworthy. They're upheld forever and ever. Are the the laws of our land 
trustworthy? Well, we hope that most of them are. We know that some aren't. And we know none of them are upheld forever and ever. We have courts that we don't think deal rightly with the legal affairs of our land. Judges who don't judge rightly. Juries that don't make the right verdict. God's not like us. He has sent redemption to his people. We can't redeem ourselves. So, God's not like us. He is not like us in all those respects. Let's distill it down. He's not able to sin. Now, in theological debates, this is called the, the, the peccability, impeccability. And you, you might be surprised that there actually is, in Christian circles, a debate on this, whether or not Jesus Christ was able to sin. Now, if you say, well, is God able to sin? You'd have to say, well, no. He can only do all of his holy will. But then you've got Christ who comes and takes on human flesh, takes on a human nature, takes on human will. And so theologians get into the, into the eye of the needle and try to thread it where there's no place to thread. And, and so they'll say, well, he, he was able to sin, but he didn't. Then you have to ask, well, why didn't he? And by the way, the majority position among Christian theologians is that is the impeccability position that Christ was not able to sin. In other words, he could not sin. Why? Because he's God. That's, that's what you have to always keep in mind with the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, he was fully man. He took a human nature to to be able to save our human natures. He took a human will in order to save our fallen will. But he was still, at the very same time, at every moment, very God of very God. He was divine. And in his divinity, he could not sin. And so Jesus did not sin, even though he was tempted to sin. You remember that? In Hebrews chapter 4, he was tempted as we are. And that's where people say, oh, see, if he was tempted, he must have been able to succumb. No. He was tempted, and yet, the writer says, he was without sin. Why was he without sin? Just because he chose not to? No, because he could not. But he was still tempted. Satan was still there. But he didn't. Because he couldn't. He couldn't because he's holy, holy, holy. Don't ever forget that. That's why he could do everything and not fall into sin. It's because he was holy, holy, holy. He's not only not able to sin, he's not affected by sin. He is unchangeable in his perfect holiness. It's true, as I said, that the Bible says he was tempted, but 
he did not sin. His nature and his will were so attuned in the Lord Jesus Christ, his will and his nature were so attuned to his holy nature and his holy will, there was no place for sin. See, that's where he's not like us. Our nature is being sanctified, but it's not sanctified completely. Our will is being changed so that we, we more and more want to do the right thing. But it's not perfected. But the Lord is. And he's not then affected by sin. It doesn't touch him. It doesn't change him. And he's not limited by sin. Sin limits us, doesn't it? Just go ahead and nod. If you're awake, nod. Sin limits us. I heard again this week, we live in America. If you can dream it, you can do it. Isn't that one of the dumbest things you've ever heard? But we have an alternative lifestyle that's determined that, and I'm not t talking about Romans 1 per se, And I'm going to tell you, if tomorrow I decided, you know what? I would love to be six foot 11 inches and 25 years old and play in the NBA. I just think it'd be one of the coolest things in the world to slam a basketball on somebody else's head. you dream it, you can do it. What? Sin limits us. Other things limit us too, but sin limits us. We cannot attain perfection because we're hindered by sin. But God's not hindered by sin. Sin did not keep the Savior from healing the sick. It didn't keep him from raising his, his friend Lazarus. And it didn't keep him from raising himself from the grave after three days. No limits. Death limits us. Death didn't limit Jesus because he's God. He's holy, holy, holy. He possesses that fullness of being that has no limits. Children learn this. What can God do, children? God can do all his holy will. Right? God can do all his holy will because he is holy, holy, holy. Remember what Jesus said to Martha your brother will rise from the dead. Martha said, I know. She had good theology here. I know that he'll rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So I would ask you, do you believe that God's not like us? 
And we try to make him so much like us. You know, we do this, we do this thing. God is love. Love is God. Yeah, yeah, that, no, that doesn't work. Just look it up in the logic books. Okay? And then we do this. We're made in his image. And whether we say it or not, we then say, we're made in his image. He's made in our image. And then we, we make God real cozy and familiar. And we twist him around, but he's holy, 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 and we're not. God is perfect, and we're not. His nature is one of rectitude or integrity. Because his nature is pure and straight and faultless, he's above sin. We don't have a perfected nature. We have a nature that's being more and more made perfect by the work of the Spirit. But sin has left its indelible mark on us. That's the reason we're told in Romans that, the, the, that sin no longer has dominion over us. We sing. Right? We sing about the power of canceled sin. That's taken from Romans 6. So see, there's a case where we're not like God because he's perfect. We have the power not to sin, but we will to sin anyway. God has the power not to sin and wills not to sin. Because he's perfect. <clears throat> his will, not only his nature, but his will is one of rectitude and integrity. God never bends or veers. He's straight as an arrow, as we say. We're crooked. On our best day, we're a little off. We can get as close to straight in this world that we might be, and we're still crooked. We're still bent. And we see that because, and Paul talks about this. He says, the things that I know I should do, I don't do. And the things that I know I shouldn't do, I do. But God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the things they know to do because they decreed to do it, they do it. They will it. That's what they want. And so then that leads us to, that's what they do. Their deeds are complete, rectitude, integrity. If you want the right things and you're God, then you do the right things. That shows us again, we're not like God. You say, oh boy. So I, I guess just sin. No, Paul addresses this, doesn't he? No, don't just sin. Pray. Seek the Lord. Call upon the Lord. Continue steadfastly. We're not perfect, but he is. His will is perfectly aligned with his nature. And because his will is perfect and his deeds are perfectly flowing out of his his want to, 
we have hope. That's, that's the reminder to us. Our hope's not in us. My hope's not in me. My hope's not in you. My hope is in the perfect one. The perfect, thrice holy one. The one who can do all his holy will. Finally, God's perfection affects us. When we get a glimpse of and we we fixate on his holiness, this is who he is. He's so different than us. He is so perfect. We have a vision. We have a vision and that makes us more and more aware of God being with us and in us and working through us. You remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus? Very briefly here. You can't, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom. There's an order to this. He didn't say, if you, if you, if you're, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom and then see the kingdom. You have to see it before you can enter it. have to see Christ before you can before you can trust him that's what regeneration does it gives us eyes to see that no, this Jesus isn't just a good man he's the God man and that's his kingdom that he's ruling and reigning over that's his army that he's leading in battle so when we get a grip a grasp, rather, a glimpse of God's holiness. It gives us eyes to see things properly. It'll also humble us. You can't be proud of something that you can't do. You can't take credit for something that you have to give God credit for. It's a humbling thing when when we grasp. I'm, I'm convinced. One of the reasons... We're prideful as we are is because we don't think of God as holy, holy, holy as we ought to. And finally, a vision of God's perfection makes us willing. We want to do when we're humble. Isaiah, that's what happened to Isaiah. Once he was humbled by this holy, holy, holy thing, woe is me. Here I am. Send me, Lord. That was the progression. He saw this holy vision. He realized who he was compared to that holiness. And then he was ready to go. And even when God said, you're going to go and you're going to preach and they're not going to listen and they're going to hate you. He was still willing to go. How many? How many? I've often said, if that had been the call of God on my life, I'd still be sitting somewhere. You're going to go and nobody's going to pay attention. You're going to go and nobody cares. You're going to go and they won't have eyes to see or ears to hear. Why then? I'll just throw this. In missiology, you have this this. This really bad theology that says uh, you go, you send your money, 
where you can get the most bang for your bucks just to be crass. That's how it's put. I'm sorry. My response to that every time to missiologists and missionaries who hold that unbiblical view is, I'm sorry, but Jesus said go to the ends of the earth. He didn't say go where people are responding. He didn't send Isaiah where they were responding. He didn't send Ezekiel where they were responding. He didn't send Jeremiah where they were responding. He didn't send any of the prophets where they were responding, except Jonah perhaps. Jonah couldn't believe that. But we go because he's holy, holy, holy. And we get a vision then of who we are and what we ought to be doing is serving a God like that. Whatever happened to God, we took him off his throne of holiness. We made him common, just like us. And we need a good dose of his holiness and a good vision of his holiness. And hopefully this begins that. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. We pray that you'd do just that. And in turn, we'd be more holy. For your glory, we pray this. Amen.